Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Joining me to perform the British public service of not talking at length about Brexit as parliamentary democracy topples around our ears is the citizen of Europe herself, Thea Lenarduzzi. Ciao, Thea. Ciao. Do you say, you do say ciao, don't you? Me. No, one to one, say hello. yes. Yes. Yeah, ciao. And, and I do also. Uh, I was going to ask you because we talked about uh, we talked about ball sports today, didn't we? Yes. And you said you what, what's the phrase you used about you were unlucky with balls or something like that, and it made me a magnet for balls. A magnet. Is, I think what I, is I think what I said. We were specifically talk- my head. Yes, your head was a magnet for balls because we were talking about injuries that one can get with sports. I have a son who's constantly. Where did it come from? Where, how did we start down that road? Can you remember? Um, I really genuinely cannot no. remember. It, it ended, the conversation ended with Thea saying magnet for balls and I thought, oh, I'll mention that because it, uh, it brought me good cheer and I hope it has you. <laughs> it's better than talking about Brexit. Yeah, it is. It, it is. I mean, virtually, I mean, the thing is that is a test that can be passed by almost anything, um, <laughs> I would imagine. Uh, make sure you're all doing your bit to support transcontinental culture. Google TLS subscriptions and join our merry little gang. We've published some good stuff this year, I promise. Coming up this week, the sexy world of social science psychology those inventive experiments that teach us in shocking fashion about our common inhumanity but how much is it the preserve of hucksters and headline chasers andrew skull weighs in with some thoughts and as part of our translation special boyd tonkin joins us to discuss his review of a book promising 100 of the finest short stories ever translated hubristic talk surely he'll let us know Boyd Tonkin begins his review this week of a collection of 100 short stories gathered from around the world and translated into English by pointing out that this impulse to grasp and to survey the entire planet of words is not as new as some of us might think when observing publishing trends. The efforts of Goethe and his disciples to forge a notion of world literature are, Boyd says, early expressions of that ambition – And ambition is the right word. The editor of the present volume, Frank Wynne, himself a translator, has drawn from 33 languages and four centuries of material. And the result is undoubtedly a wonderful thing, as well as an opportunity for us to talk about the health of literature in translation more broadly. 
If studies citing a 96% rise in sales of translated fiction between 2001 and 2015 are to be believed, a collection such as this will be all too enthusiastically received by Anglophone readers. But consider also that, according to a recent report in 2011, all translations published and distributed in the UK and Ireland represent only around 3%, compared to around 12% in Germany, around 16% in France and just shy of 20% in Italy. Then, more anecdotally, we might also observe that in the UK, and leaving the TLS out of it for now, literature in translation seems still to be set aside, on its own shelf somewhere, usually towards the back of the bigger bookshops. Some critics have referred to the ghettoisation of translated literature. Here to shed light on all of this is Boyd Tonkin. Um, Before we go any further, I should point out that long before the Man Booker International and in the US the National Book Awards new category last year for translated literature came the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize. That was founded in 1990 and you were behind that. Well, I was behind its revival. Yes, it had a little period of abeyance in the late 1990s. And then in 2001, we had some really stalwart support from Arts Council England and we could start it up again. And I'm glad to say it more or less expanded from then on. And you also, I mean, that sort of then merged with the Man Booker International. It merged in 2015. And what was really significant about that coming together was that the... Manbok International Prize uh, then started to offer the same prize money, £50,000, as the Manbooker Prize in English. And this was, uh, I think, an important piece of symbolism. It was showing that the, um, the International Prize, the prize for translated literature, was as important, had parity of esteem and also parity of reward. But is that true? Is that a is that a convenient fiction to make everyone feel better? Because in reality, the Booker Prize um, in English, the the English one, is 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 the one that agents care about. Is the one that's heralded by people and gets all the coverage. It's a long haul, yeah. And you start somewhere, uh, and I think it's a very important place to start. Um, and uh, we've heard the figures about translations in the English-speaking world. They are improving. They're not improving as fast as one would want. But in terms of impact of attractiveness to readers, the degree to which books can create a buzz, even a sensation, I don't think we've been doing too badly. In fact, one of the problems of translation in Britain, certainly, is that the field tends to be dominated each year, each couple of years, by the next generation of superstars and talking points, whether it's Elena Ferranti or Carlo Vekonoskar, or uh, we've just had the coverage of the latest novel by Michel Welbeck, which isn't even translated yet. And one of the problems of trying to get people to read more fiction in translation is simply finding the best way to normalise it. So, in other words, the translated author is not an exotic rarity. It's not like some tropical fruit that suddenly lands in your local greengrocer, but it's something that you naturally and enjoyably consume month in, month out. But we're sort of torn, though, aren't we? Because we, we, while not wanting to draw attention to the foreignness of it so that people don't feel nervous about it and bookshops can put it up front, we also have yeah. to recognise it so that we can recognise the tremendous achievement involved in, in bringing it there so that that 
that's the translators, the editors. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting paradox. Of course, you have to celebrate the art of the translator. You have to reward them properly. You have to give them prizes, which they certainly deserve. But on the other hand, after all, these are books which uh, ordinary readers will come across uh, because they like the idea of the original text. Uh, they're not necessarily going to be attracted by the excellence of the translation as a primary motive. That's not in invariably true. I can think of translators, for instance, the sadly late Anthea Bell, uh, whose consistent record of excellence was really uh, so extraordinary that people would be drawn to, to books that she had translated by her name uh, rather than the original author's name. But that, I think, is a very uncommon occurrence. And, and it's a different qualitative experience, isn't it, when you're reading a translation? Uh, because when you're reading the original, you know you're dealing with things like authorial intent, you're dealing with a verbal texture that you know has a certain source. And then when you're reading a translated book, you don't know whether the effect you're experiencing, particularly if you don't speak the original language, you've got no sense of, of comparing to, to the original text, you don't know whether you're experiencing a, a turn of phrase that is the, the product of the translator. Um, I think Martin Amos said trying to trying to separate that out is trying to find brush strokes in a brownie. It, it's a different it's a different product you've kind of got at the end of it. Does that not affect how you read and how you seek to enjoy the words, or is that overthinking it a little bit? Uh, well, it's important if you're a specialist. I don't think it's important if you're just looking for for a good novel to read. Uh, the question of um, translation as interpretation is what I would want to emphasise here. In, in the same way that a performance of Beethoven's Eroica, like the one I heard a couple of days ago, uh, is a very singular, time-bound version of whatever the, the composer's original intentions were. So all translations, especially translations of the literature of the past, is equally a creative interpretation, but a creative interpretation which is rooted in what we know of the intentions, the choices, the uh, structural underpinnings of the original. I feel like we've come quite a long way in, in recognising that, though. If you compare, I think, perhaps... In its search, and you know, it, perhaps it needed to happen. Translators needed to find their way of, of gaining recognition for their their craft. But certainly in the 90s, it seemed that translation seemed to get a bit bogged down in the theory of translating, and you know, whether to maintain a foreign term or to nativize it, or all that sort of thing. Whether the translator should be a creator or invisible. Yes. Whereas yes. now we seem to have moved beyond that, and 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 they meet as creative minds and you know, in the, in the ether or whatever I, it was. It was I, I, I think so. I, much as I admire the complexity and difficulty and artistry of translation, I have to say that if you start reading those debates about <laughs> nativizing and foreignizing tendencies, then you will lose the will to, li <laughs> to live, let alone to read translation. Having said that, Clearly, there is a particular gradient that every translator worth their salt must take. And at its summit is a peculiar kind of exchange or dialogue with the original. Uh, one of the, the 
greatest uh, theoretical expressions of this is Walter Benjamin's famous essay, The Task of the Translator, where he also almost implies that, that, that in some strange celestial realm, there is a language which is not the language of the, of the original, and it is not the language of the translation, but somehow it is, it is its own thing. Mm. Uh, uh, and it, it happens when there, there is that curious alchemy that meeting of minds or spirits between the the um, the the first text and the uh, intentions of the translator. Do you think reviews can be a little ungenerous then when they look at translations? Because you know we we publish lots of reviews of translated works, and in a very considerable number of them, there is this is the idiom in Italian. This is the effortful way in which the effort the t- translators tried to 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 turn it into English, and the effect is off-putting and quaint and or. Um, and bearing in mind that it is effectively impossible to translate an idiom between languages at one level, yeah. do you think that we collectively, when we write about translators, is there a bit of lack of generosity? It, in it? it is curious because translators are always saying to me and to everyone else involved in this business uh, that reviews should reflect uh, a more profound engagement with the quality of the translation. But as you say, when that happens, it isn't always to the translator's benefit. No. In fact, it's a lot easier to nitpick. It's a lot e- easier to find faults than it is to praise the overall tone or structure of an effective translation. And I have to say that this is perhaps the moment where we should mention that um, bad translations can have a very important role in cultural history as well. Everyone aspires to perfection to total seamless reflection of the original uh, text's intentions. Uh, but if you look at literary history, the history of fiction, of poetry, of scriptural translation, it is often the, the imprecise translations, the, the most committed and earliest translations that have the, the greatest effect. And is that to do with their quality or to do with their, their, their getting on the scene first? Partly it's to do with precedence. Yeah. Uh, in other words, the first translation of the book of a book will establish that book in the target language, irrespective of its potential faults, irrespective of the fact that someone might produce a more scholarly, reflective, considered version later. There's a kind of canonical example of this, which is the reception of Thomas Mann uh, in English. And Mann's novels were translated very early very promptly, very rapidly, uh, by a lady called Helen Lowe Porter. Uh, And it is axiomatic in the uh, business of German translation that in many ways she wasn't that good. (laughs) She she wasn't, certainly wasn't a punctilious translator. Uh, Her linguistic knowledge seems to have been defective in many ways. However, Thomas Mann thoroughly approved of what she was doing. Uh, He was very keen to get into the English and American markets as quickly as possible. Uh, He endorsed her translations. And I have to say that it is those translations that first introduced me to Mann. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my magic mountain is Helen Lowe Porter's magic mountain uh, for all its uh, potential drawbacks. And it still have a, has, a, I think, a, an absolutely stupendous narrative power. It's interesting in a sense because if, if a novel's published, you, you don't expect a second revised edition to come out. Yeah. Whereas translations, they need to be revised in a sense. Because I mean, thinking, I'm thinking uh, this week we have a review of um, Cesare Pavese, um, 
I think it's Penguin have just reissued um, La Belle Estate, and it's the tradi- it's the the translation from the 1950s, yeah. and it suffers for not having been updated. And people who read, I think, people who read the English version of, of that story now. It's full of blighters and what the Dickens yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just, yeah. you, you lose it. You, yeah. you've, you've sort of lost the work there. It yeah. needs to be updated for a new generation. That, that's a very, very important point, the, the degree to which um, translations age mm. and date faster than their originals. And why is that? Because actually at one level that's surprising because there's a, a piece of work written in the 1950s in Italian that should date in the same way as a piece of text written in the English in the 1950s, shouldn't it? I'm not exactly sure why it happens, but, but it becomes a very, very significant factor when you want to recommend translations to people who might not know an author. It was something that I came a, a across very, very frequently when I was... Um, compiling my book of the my, my own choice of, of 100 translations. And I found that there were wonderful authors whom I couldn't in all conscience advocate because the translations had, had really, uh, they had a whiff of the, 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 um, the back shelf in the forgotten library yeah. to them. Uh, this was true, for instance, of some wonderful Scandinavian writers, um, Salma Lagerlöf, the, the great Swedish writer, Nobel Prize winner, uh, a wonderful novel of hers called Jerusalem about Swedish uh, migrants to the Holy Land uh, at the, the turn of the 20th century. A very important novel, uh, pioneering in many ways, but it, it hasn't been translated, to my knowledge, for, for really quite a few decades. And the versions that you can come across, and it will take you a lot of effort to find them, are really not things that you would want to recommend to a new generation of readers. Is that the question that when you're translating, you're already putting an idiom under an awful lot of pressure? So, so in some ways, by taking a piece of slang in Italian and putting it in English, there's always a, there's already a strain there, and so that then left for fifty years, it's not going to be a, it's never going to have been natural English to begin yeah, with. So yeah. maybe that's why it's prematurely aged in the in yeah, in, in yeah, the second it, language. The, the, uh, and of course, the, the, you mention a really uh, a separate and also very important uh, uh, issue here, which is the way that that informal colloquial language uh, is is uh, a way, in a way subject to more rapid obsolescence yeah. than what you might call classical educated speech uh, this again is some, something uh, i dealt with when making my own selection but in one instance i was really saved by the bell because a, a novel i love is um derblin's berlin alexanderplatz yeah uh, first translated in 1931 by a guy called uh, Eugene Jolas, uh, who was a friend of Joyce and Pound, who was quite an important figure on the Parisian literary scene at the time. Uh, but he produced a, a very slangy 1931 translation of this great novel of the Weimar Republic, which really often sounds like the dialogue in an early Hitchcock film. If you can imagine, I don't know, Harry Enfield's version of, of a Cockney <laughs> accent from a 1930s film, uh, then you get 500 pages of that in, in Jolas's version of Berlin Alexanderplatz. So rather sadly, I was thinking I would have to leave it out. And then, just in the nick of time, along came Michael, Michael Hoffman, Hoffman. Yeah. <laughs> with his amazingly vigorous and supple and dynamic new version of Berlin Alexanderplatz. But again, you have to wonder, in 30 or 40 years' time, how, will that date? how much of that slang will appear 
very quaint and very outdated. We had him in the we had him we had the introduction in the paper uh, yeah. of yeah. of that, and it's mm. um, and maybe he's a poet, so maybe maybe that he has a sense of of of, of the tenor and, and value of words more than a prose writer. Maybe that will have an impact on it. Who knows? Um, let's talk about Frank Wynne's collection yeah. before we That's... don't. So it sounds like a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like a wonderful yeah. collection, as you said. It's an ambitious thing. So what does he give us a sense of his criteria or his, his methodology? Uh, well, I, I think he's basically looking for, for great stories, but he's also looking for a much wider spread geographically and culturally uh, than is often the case in uh, anthologies of translated literature. Uh, we could touch here on the issue of how far the entire translation game has been a very Eurocentric yeah. uh, enterprise. And Frank is, I think, very deliberately and honourably uh, trying to push some of those boundaries so that you have a much wider range of languages uh, and geographical origins uh, than you would do in a traditional anthology of this kind, everywhere from uh, Korea to Iceland to Argentina. Oh, and he's a tran- he's a translator from Spanish as well, isn't he? He's, he's a translator from, from Spanish as well and as French. French, which of course opens up um, much of Latin America to him as well. And you don't mind because you've done your own book, hundred best novels in translation. There's always going to be the slight charge of 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 not quite who, but in this case, hubris. Hundred of the finest short stories ever translated <laughs> yeah, as, a, as, yeah. a, as a subtitle. Provocative. Is, it's. I mean, and do we just forgive him because it's just the, it's just a marketing technique to, well, to get well, the book I, read? Well, I mean, I. I Obviously, I grappled with this, but basically, your readers are grown-ups. They know that this is an intellectual exercise, but it's also, crucially, an invitation to debate. Of course, part of the whole idea is that people should say, why is such and such a writer or such and such a story uh, excluded? And if it makes readers think more seriously about what they rate, what they love how they would construct their own personal canons, then that's all to the good. Well, in, in that spirit then, who were you thrilled to see and who, who did you miss? Well, um, I was thrilled to see some of the writers, I, as we were saying, from beyond Europe. Um, for instance, the remarkable Japanese woman writer Ichio Higuchi, whom I really hadn't read before, a, a real discovery from the late 19th century. Wonderful stories from, for instance, um, the Catalan writer uh, Messe Rodoreda, from Urdu Isma Chuktai, from Japanese uh, selection of, of tremendous writers, Akutagawa, Mishima, Chinese writers whom I didn't really know, such as Shi Shi, uh, another woman writer who, uh, for whom this was a, a, a real, for me this was a real revelation. And if you don't know, know the, then, then, then <laughs> yes. there's, there's, yeah. there's a chance of most people not knowing. And it's nice, isn't it, to, 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 to find a writer yeah. that, that you would have, to be introduced by someone else to a writer. Yes, yeah, because obviously this happens to me, this happens to everyone who compiles any kind of anthology or selection the easiest form of review is simply to list the omissions. Um, <laughs> um, and you didn't do that. It's a very kind yeah, review. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's but, exactly but, right. But, but there are some... Go some, on, go okay, on. <laughs> there are some fantastic writers who Frank could have included, for instance, uh, uh, Eileen Chang, a wonderful Chinese short story writer. Close to, to home, uh, this is another issue I, I, I dealt with and I think rather, rather fumbled with uh, in my own book. 
I think we need to realise that there is a wonderful literature in the British Isles, not written in English. Welsh. So, for instance, uh, the terrific Welsh short story writer Kate Roberts uh, could have been uh, in Frank's anthology in the same way that, for instance, um, a Welsh writer like uh, Caradog Pritchard could have been uh, in my book. Is there an argument that because Welsh was a, is, was a very oral storytelling culture that at some level, either consciously or subconsciously, we have not valued its 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 literature, its written down stories, because we kind of associate uh, Steadfords and music and bardic nature of, of, of Welsh. We don't necessarily, in our own minds, think of it as having a canon of, of written literature. Well, that, I think that's true, but you could say the same for the written literature from uh, many other parts of the world. If you look at, for instance, the, the oral storytelling tradition in many parts of Africa or the Middle East or Asia, there is the same, as you said, a kind of intellectual mismatch between recognising that, that this tradition is powerful and living uh, and thriving uh, and acknowledging that it has also given rise to uh, a remarkable uh, form of Britain literature as well. So, But I think that there's a, a general tendency not to want to know about the the literature of Welsh or Irish or Scottish Gaelic. Um, that, I think, is one of the many metropolitan prejudices that we should seek to get over. And this book and your book and is a... And actually, generally speaking, caring about translation is is one way of achieving a response to insularity, to to to, to prejudice in in its broadest sense. Well, yes, uh, of course, um, literature is not the world, and, and translated literature has enormous blind spots and grey areas. So, uh, however much you consume of it, however much you, you appreciate it, uh, there will always be. Uh, terrain which is undiscovered. Uh, for me, one of the, the great absences uh, in the English tradition of translation is how little contemporary or recent literature comes to us from the Indian subcontinent. Uh, partly it's because we think we know Indian or Pakistani or Sri Lankan literature because there are so many fantastic writers in English. And because of this, agents and publishers think that they don't really need to look further. They don't really need to find out what's happening in Bengali or Urdu or Tamil or Kannada or, or Hindi. But in all of those languages and many others, there is a flourishing tradition of prose fiction. And it would be nice to feel that we were getting just a little more of it here. The task has been set. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From the 50s to the 70s, there was a rise of prominent social psychological experiments that got everyone excited. Stanley Milgram of Yale showed that people under the influence of authority figures would be willing to administer fatal electric shocks. There was the Stanford Prison Experiment, in which folk were randomly allocated roles of guards and prisoners, and the power-abusing brutality of the former was quick to follow. Gina Perry has written a book about another called The Robber's Cave Experiment by Muzaffar Sharif, which involved children being manipulated into hostile activity in the manner of the Lord of the Flies. How much of this is based on opportunism or snake oil? And what about a later, different figure like Martin Seligman, who has produced a memoir charting his journey from helplessness to optimism? Andrew Skull, a renowned sceptic, to put it mildly, has looked into all of this in the TLS and joins us now. Andrew, hello. Hello. Now, can we go back to why there was this rise, I suppose, of these sort of quite showy, very narrative-driven experiments? It is very interesting, and I, as I look at the experiments you've you've laid out, and also David Rosenhan's piece on uh, how uh, pseudo patients uh, got themselves into mental hospitals, one of the, th- the strands that connects them, I think, is they're all written by young academics at the beginning of their career, who are clearly very ambitious. They're all very flamboyant kinds of figures. They seize on this kind of work which in a way confirms people's fears to build their own careers and and Sharif is lucky because he concocts his experiment and I say that advisedly because he actually creates his own findings according to a script almost that emerges at almost exactly the same time as William Golding's Lord of the Flies that's a coincidence but it's not something that does Sharif any harm uh, if you look at the Zimbardo prison experiment, that's just after the Attica prison rising in New York, where the prisoners uh, fight the guards, there's, uh, there's mass killing. And of course, Milgram is about the same time as the Eichmann trial. So these are people who are tapping into something that's going on at the same time. So is it a question, I mean, one of the, one of the criticisms of Freud is he's, he's almost a better novelist than he was a scientist. Um, because of his desire to create story. And, and it feels reading your account of, of these, and we'll get to the, the Robber's Cave experiment shortly, they're driven by story rather than necessarily by science. Is, is that a fair criticism, do you think? I certainly think so. And Gina Perry, uh, for all that I didn't like the approach she took in, in dealing with the Robber's Cave experiment, inventing 
what was going on in people's minds and that sort of thing. Uh, this is the second bite she's had at this particular problem. She went back and reviewed all the original Milgram uh, audio tapes and documents, and it was clear that Milgram's experiment rather than being about obedience to authority, is much more about how people can be bullied into behaviors they otherwise probably wouldn't engage in. So over and over again, when these experiments are probed, they turn out to have been a kind of orchestrated storytelling, exactly as you just mentioned, which resonates very powerfully because of the picture it draws of of, um, human beings, which is often not a very flattering one. But they're extremely unethical experiments, almost without without exception. Well, tell us about robbers, uh, the robbers' cave, because uh, explain it to us, because yeah. uh, it inv- involves implausibly a plan to set an entire forest on fire. It seems. What's setting out to do? What's the what are the parameters of it? Well, what the robbers' cave is about, and it's research that the Rockefeller Foundation funded by the standards of the time, quite a lot of money to do it. Uh, and he tried initially an experiment that that never saw the light of day, really, until Gina Perry came along. Um, he set up an experiment originally in, in upstate New York, in the countryside, and he brought together groups of boys, uh, aged about 11, and he let them start to make friendships. And then he broke up each dyad, so one friend, one fr- early friend they didn't know one another before the experiment would be a they were assigned to two different teams and then the teams were kind of set against one another and the intent was to try to create as much vicious behavior and rivalry as possible and in order to do that the adults who were supposedly supervising them often engaged in in some pretty outrageous behavior that was disguised as coming from the other group of boys, the competing group of boys. Uh, And this was into the first round of experiment was really intended, first of all, to create uh, this kind of viciousness and so to show human beings were evil. Uh, And then by creating a crisis, to show that perhaps those um, behaviors could could be reversed. And the crisis in the New York experiment was that uh, Sharif planned to actually set a forest fire uh, and have these kids join together to fight it, which luckily never happened because the experiment fell apart before then. And so he was stuck. Rockefeller was writing to him saying, okay, what are you finding here about human nature? And he didn't have anything to show them. So with the bit of money that was left, he cobbled together an experiment in the southwest of the United States. And this time he made sure he got the results he wanted. And in fact, when he didn't, he faked the data. And the robber's cave experiment exploded on the scene right, as I say, around the time of William Golding's novel, Lord of the Flies, and it seemed to show a very, very similar pattern. But in fact, the pattern it was showing was a a carefully orchestrated drama that uh, Sharif had had put on and then, then published. And the interesting thing about these experiments we've been talking about, Milgram and and Zimbardo's prison experiment and so on, is they still fetch up to this day in the uh, social psychological textbooks that are given to undergraduates. And very seldom do the many methodological and ethical criticisms that have emerged 
in the literature, very seldom do those make it into print. So the students are taught, taught these things as though they are um, received truth, when in fact, almost all of them are heavily uh, influenced by the people who, who set the programs up. And presumably also there's, we have to think about who was funding them. So you mentioned Rockefeller. I wonder what that institution's interest was there. We're talking about the 50s to the 70s, which was also a boom time for advertising and like the commercial sector. Does that come into it at all? Well, the interesting thing is that psychology as, a, as a, an academic discipline and as an enterprise grows massively after World War II. It does so partly as a result of the wartime breakdown of, of soldiers in combat, which is not shell shock this time around, but combat fatigue or combat neurosis. And that really fuels the rise of clinical psychology, a psychology that claims to intervene. Now, Rockefeller Foundation, interestingly, during the 1930s, had made its major priority in funding medical research psychiatry, which is a very odd choice because it was such a, uh, you know, it was really the orphan of medicine in, in lots of ways. And, um, uh, and after World War II, as federal funding starts to be available in increasingly large amounts, it tends to replace the big foundations. And, and a lot of it in the mental health area goes to psychology rather than, rather than to psychiatry. Now, Rockefeller is also very disappointed uh, with the effects of 15 years of funding psychiatry. So you see in their records in the late 1940s, a turning away from it, even a changing of the guard, the man who's run their medical programs, Alan Gregg, is sort of pushed aside. And Chester Barnard, who's now become the the head of the foundation thinks this is all a bit of a racket. And, and so the money tends to start being directed more towards social sciences, towards uh, psychology. And there's a, there's a great deal of interest in uh, how, in the basics of human personality and also the ways in which they can be manipulated. Remember, this is also the time of the Manchurian candidate. Yeah. I don't think the Rockefeller people are malignly manipulating this research. They fund it because it seems an interesting way of probing what people's natural capacities are. It's the same, in a way, uh, Sharif is imagining the same sorts of things as William Golding is. And you could say, well, it's a, it's a very clever production. It's like almost like a play that's conducted over a period of weeks uh, in real time and, and using amateur actors and he gets them to do most of what he wants. But is the lesson in the end, Andrew, of all these things that human beings aren't quite as bad as advertised, they're not quite as controllable as advertised because all of these experiments, they set up a narrative which is that people can be made to do inhuman things or, or awful things yes. and generally speaking they, well they can be taken a, a long way it never quite reduces to that type of savagery. Exactly. And what we see here is, for, for example, in the Robbers Cave experiment, the boys suss out that it's the adults who are behind <laughs> these things. So they have a baseball game and the umpiring is deliberately biased so that one team is going to suffer a loss that's grossly unfair. And that's meant to set the other team against the other boys thinking they're cheating. But in fact the boys realize that it's the umpires, the, the referees, if you like to use their different sporting technology, who are the ones who are crooked, and they start yelling, kill the umpires. <laughs> I, 
though they they know what's going on and actually if you look at um, the the uh, Milgram experiments a lot of people resist and that's the kind of data that was suppressed in Milgram's reports about the experiments and it's the thing that Gina Perry in her previous book about Milgram exposed really pretty thoroughly that um, you know people did actually exhibit signs of gross discomfort there were a lot of people who refused to go along with what they were ordered to do and all the concentration was on the people who did the bad things this prison experiment the same thing uh you know there'd just been this horrendous publicity about attica where the guards had been brutally violent in the prison and then the, that created a counter reaction for the prisoners so when those kids were recruited to that they sort of went in with knowing well the prisoners were tend to behave this way in prisons and the guards that way and then zimbardo actually actively sort of coached the boys who were acting as guards to act the way he wanted and then announced this sort of was the natural emergence it wasn't natural at all it was it was actually a created event and so these these experiments, yes, over and over, we all, I mean, the Milgram experiment, everybody hears about it, and everybody hears that we obey authority unquestioningly. And actually, if you look at the data, that's not what that experiment shows. Yet, over and over again, it's entered the folk uh, knowledge of all of us, and, and we tend to believe it. So when we see Abu Ghraib, for example, we go, oh, that's the Milgram experiment again. And it, the other thing about that, I would say, is this is tremendous leap from these completely artificial uh, environments to claims that, that these sorts of things happen on a grand scale in a very different kind of context. Well, and talking about um, artificial environments and indeed gross discomfort and bad things, um, tell us about Martin uh, Seligman's experiments in the 60s with dogs. Yes, well, um, <laughs> at least in Seligman's telling until that period when he was still a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, psychology was dominated by behaviorism, by the sort of Skinner operant conditioning, stimulus and, and response and negative reinforcements and producing behaviors and so on. And Seligman and one of his friends conceived the notion, which was around in the air at that time, that perhaps things were more complicated, that perhaps there was a cognitive dimension even to the way animals behave. And so what he tried to do with his dogs was to create what he called learned helplessness. So selected a group of, of dogs, shot them so that they reacted to a certain stimulus, expecting a, stop, uh, a shock when they were shown something, they, they reacted because they were expecting a painful electrical current through their pores. And then he, create, he used what was called a shuttle box where the animal could escape the negative stimulus, in this case the shock, by just jumping over a barrier to the other side of the box. Uh, but some of these dogs had been shown that they could escape the nasty shock. Some dogs were shocked no matter what happened. Whatever they did, they got a shock. Um, those dogs just sat there and, and cried and didn't try to escape the shock. So hence the notion that of learned helplessness. And what Seligman uh, and his partner did is extrapolate from that and say, well, 
that was akin to the way humans behave when they're depressed. Uh, they become withdrawn. Uh, they, they, their thoughts cycle constantly in negative patterns. They, 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 they're incapable of moving forward and getting out of the kind of vicious circle that they're trapped in. So that was, that was uh, an experiment that received quite a lot of publicity. It boosted uh, Seligman's career. It was a kind of clever laboratory experiment that seemed um, quite powerful at the time. Oddly enough, many decades later, his collaborator in, in this experiment, whose name is escaping me, of course, at my age, yeah, Maya. And said, Maya, yes, he reversed the experiment and said, no, learned helplessness is our natural condition. And what we have to be taught is ways to move forward. Anyway, but learned helplessness seemed a very powerful metaphor for depression. And it turns out that in the late 70s and in particularly in the 80s, depression was becoming sort of the common cold of psychiatry. It was becoming something that was seemed to be everywhere. Uh, so this model, this psychological model of where depression might come from, this sense of helplessness, and perhaps an intervention that persuaded people they could actually help themselves. That seemed very powerful for a while. So it made Seligman quite prominent, and it made him part of the mainstream of academic psychiatry, which was a discipline very much based in the laboratory, wanting findings that had the patina of science. So it was attractive to gurus. This, this is what he became. He became, instead of a clinician, he becomes someone who wants to encourage happiness as an aim, and, and that's then pervaded a lot of, 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 of the political yeah. thinking of the world. Yes. What Seligman does a bit later is, is realise that this market among the clinical folks in his profession is a very large one, and that also he's somebody who can write easily for a general audience. And it, as you will know, being in, in the business of reviewing books, the books that sell in extraordinary quantities are these kind of self-help manuals and these how to discover what your personality is and how to make yourself a better person. Seligman discovers that if he abandons the laboratory approach and he embraces so-called interventions, uh, he can make himself very rich uh, and attract a very large following. Uh, and he becomes known as the happiness guru. And because he's a man with an enormous ego, he claims to have completely reoriented psychology. And he attracts not just a vast audience buying his books, but he attracts politicians like Sarkozy and your own David Cameron, uh, who announces he's going to measure happiness and see, you know, judge his policies by whether Britain becomes a, a, a place with a, a better gross national happiness index. Um, yeah, I think we've possibly, we possibly well. moved, we've moved past that now. I think we, we, just, we just want Britain to keep the lights on for the for next couple, couple of years. That, 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 that idyll of worrying about happiness in that sense is, is probably the past. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Dick. Thank you, Thea. It's lovely to chat. Lovely to speak to you. Bye. Yeah, there was that period when it's relatively new, and even in testing and in schools, happiness is supposed to. And mm. you can see there is a validity to mm. it that if you're if you're looking for a sense of well-being, but that feels like a rather long time ago. It does, it? doesn't it? I mean, we're we're recording this in the day of sort of Brexit carnage in Parliament and and the line. We shouldn't talk about Brexit, obviously. No, but, let's let's. But that that Cameroonian regard for. 
intangible happiness seems mm. a long time ago. But, mm. but the fact that he would fall for a happiness guru also says a lot about him as a leader, I would think. Your David Cameron theory. My David Cameron. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Andrew Skull and Boyd Tonkin. Get subscribing to the paper or buy a copy in those quaint little places called shops. The translation issue is full of little-known joys. Did you know, Thea, the answer to this must be no, well, it certainly was for me, that the Yiddish poet Sutzkever, were you familiar with that said of poet? Of course. Uh, it's an amazing story. It's, it's about his uh, fascinating life. Yeah, it was in Poland. I think he escaped from the Nazis. And anyway, he had to cross a minefield and he decided to cross it in poetic metre. Sometimes I walked in anapests, sometimes in amphibrachs, he said. <laughs> and he was literally saved by poetry because he, he moved according to rhythm and was not blown up. Isn't that a fascinating story? It's <laughs> amazing. I did, I did not know that. No, I did not know that. But did, it? Um, did you know that Natalia Ginsburg was a terrible singer? No. She was. In her own words, she was a yowler. A yowler. All these things you can learn in there's the of, There's lots of bits of... Yeah, <laughs> lots of... I'm trying to get us to do this more on Instagram, actually. I want us to do the little facts. Cause I always... When I'm reading the proofs, I tend to read a whole bulk of this in one go. And I was like, ooh! <laughs> oh, I, oh, I don't... I try not to make that noise, if possible. I do often... I'm often I've heard tempted. that coming from yeah, the corner. Yeah, you did wonder. You did wonder. <laughs> Next week, what are we going to do? Well, I think... We're getting perilously close to talking about modernity, Thea, by looking at Reddit, what? the alt-right, <laughs> and advertising. Yes. So we will try, we'll try and bring some of that onto the podcast and we'll try to find something old too. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.